I think you have to have sort of compatible spirits, you know, and the things that Brian and I had in common were not our hobbies. And it was not Henry James. I have other people I can talk to Henry James about, plus I have my own thoughts, so I don't really need to talk to somebody else about them, except for fun. And I just certainly didn't need that in a husband. But what we had in common was that neither of us was very good at denial. Both of us preferred a certain amount of transparency. We had very similar values politically. He had never had children and never wanted children, but he was willing to embrace my children and he adored the grandchildren and they adored him. So he was willing to have the shape of his family life conform to my stronger wishes. And we trusted each other. We both thought the other person was the right kind of person, a good person, a person you'd want to be in trouble with. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is writer Amy Bloom. She is the author of 10 books, most of them works of fiction. Her latest book is a memoir. It's called In Love, and it chronicles the experience of her husband, Brian, being diagnosed with Alzheimer's in his mid-60s and his making the decision to end his life on his own terms. This requires traveling to Zurich, where an organization called Dignitas facilitates what they called accompanied suicide. Amy talked with me about what was involved in getting there and why seeking aid in dying in places in the U.S. that technically allow it is much more complicated than most people realize. In addition to being an author and a professor of creative writing at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, Amy has also been a practicing psychotherapist for decades, and she talks about how that role intersects with her writing life and what she's learned about relationships and compatibility after years of hearing people's stories and telling her own. So here is my interview with Amy Bloom. Amy Bloom, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thank you. It's good to be here to speak about the unspeakable. Yes. This is your 11th book. Do I have that right? That seems like a lot. I know. I think maybe it's the 10th. Okay. All right. Uh, Whichever book it is, um, this is an extraordinary one. You have so many wonderful books. I've been a fan of yours for such a long time, but this is really spectacular. It's about your husband, Brian's diagnosis of early onset Alzheimer's and 2019, though you'd been noticing the signs for several years prior, and your subsequent journey into helping him die the way he wished. You ended up taking him to the Dignitas Clinic in Switzerland, and we're going to talk about that and what's involved in getting there. But first, I want to ask you, and this may sound like a strange question to ask right out of the gate, but it feels right. Before this diagnosis, how did you imagine your husband dying? And how did you imagine yourself dying? Did you have an image of it in your mind or ideas about how you'd want it to go? Well, I think, you know, if you're over 50, I imagine you have occasionally thought about how you want it to go, which is always painless and peaceful after a long and happy life. Or as my father used to say, you know, shot by a jealous husband at 88. But I think I hoped for peaceful and I hoped for painless and I hoped for after a long and active life. I don't actually think I saw very much of it. I had an essay years ago 
that I wrote about falling in love with Brian, which was actually about making lasagna at various points in my life. And um, writing about the evening, he comes over and I make him dinner and we wash the dishes. And then my sort of mental fast forward to us in an apartment in Italy at the end of our long and happy lives, dying in each other's arms. I think that was certainly what I could happily imagine at the, as the end of a life. And had you seen others die painfully, family members, your parents, anything like that? Sure. I mean, I'm 68. I've seen people die. Both my parents, I was able to arrange for them to be home when they died, which was important to them not to die in a hospital. And I was able to be with them, and that was important to them. I also had lost two extremely close friends. And the ends of their lives, those last few moments were not painful, but their deterioration and their struggles were certainly very fraught and very difficult. I don't, you know, part of it is that I don't think one gets to avoid pain or even that that's the point, only that one should, if possible, be able to shape one's life, which includes one's death. So tell us how that initial conversation went with Brian, because he declared pretty quickly that he wanted to have control of how things went when, when he was finally diagnosed. Can, so can you kind of just tell us what that was sure. like? Sure. Well, we, it was not only him receiving the diagnosis of Alzheimer's, which I think was a little surprising to him. It was not surprising to me. It was terrible, but I was not taken aback. You know, in the same way, if you see a car coming towards you, it's terrible when the car hits you, but it's not necessarily a surprise in the sense that you had no idea. It's just a terrible shock to the system. And we had seen Alzheimer's close up in our family. A woman who was like an aunt to him had suffered from it. And we saw what it did to her and to her family and the end of her life, in which she was frightened and frustrated. And, you know, as, as he said, it was as, her, as if her soul had left her body already. So it did not surprise me that he knew exactly what he wanted to do. He was, as we used to say, a hard man to stop. He had always thought about these issues. He had a lot of thoughts about self-determination and human dignity and people being allowed to choose the shape of their lives in terms of autonomy and agency and free will. And he was very clear about it. He said, I know what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. And what I'm not going to do is the long goodbye of Alzheimer's. I'm going to find a way to end my life while I am still myself and you love me and you're going to help me. And he was right about it all. Did you find relief in that statement or dread? I imagine some of both. I think some of both. You know, the great regret was that he had Alzheimer's. But since he had Alzheimer's, that was something we were going to have to tackle. And I certainly understood his decision. I did say to him, you don't have to do that. I will take care of you, I will look out for you, I will protect you, and I will be with you all the way through the rest of your life. Um, and he said to me, you're not listening to me. <laughs> that is not what I want. I do not want my death to be a relief to everybody around me. 
Wow, that's actually profound. So you then embark on this process of figuring out the best way to do this. Um, You know, a lot of the book just talks about how incredibly difficult it is to, as you say, it's it's the eye of a needle. Um, And I think a lot of people assume that if they happen to be living in a state where physician-assisted suicide is legal, uh, technically, that this won't be so difficult. But in fact, you know, I think I don't, it's, it's kind of like, you know, states where you can, you can legally get an abortion, but effectively you cannot. So can you talk about what you encountered when you first started looking into what to do? Well, when we first started looking into it, both of us were like, oh my goodness, we live in Connecticut. We'll just tootle on up to Vermont and uh, a right to die state. And then you read the laws and the laws are so similar in all of the right to die states and Washington, D.C., that you, a reasonable person, might think, oh, these all seem to be, have, have been written by the same person for the same purpose. And the purpose is not to relieve suffering. The purpose is to make sure that as few people as possible are eligible for this planned physician-assisted end of life. Because if you have a dementing disease of any kind, I will just tell you from the start, you're just ineligible. It's not going to work out for you because you have to have two physicians attest to the fact that you have a terminal illness with only six months left to live. So if you had a dementing disease and you only had six months before your body gave out, you would be so far along in your cognitive impairment that you would be completely ineligible. Okay. So what would you have had to do? I mean, what is a scenario when um, physician-assisted suicide in a place like Vermont or California? Well, you have to become a resident, Okay, first of all. So you do that. You become a resident. You move to the state. You get two physicians to assess the fact that you have only six months left to live but have unimpaired cognitive functioning, which is not always the case when you have a terminal disease. And then you have uh, two, uh, usually two in-person interviews and submit something in writing. And then with, you know, another set of physicians. And then if you are okayed, there is in most places a two-week waiting period, but I understand that a couple of states have now waived the two-week waiting period, and then a physician will order a, you know, a a lethal dose of medication, which you then go and get from the pharmacy. And um, I did have an end-of-life nurse tell me that um, the physician would be allowed to offer you a straw if you had difficulty holding the glass or even help you hold the glass. Mm. Okay. Um, of course, you have to find these doctors. And are they like, are they sort of covert? I mean, they don't advertise themselves, presumably. They, they do not advertise themselves. And I imagine that some people are easier to find than others. But the burden of this entire process is on the person making the application and the people helping him or her. Okay, so you investigated other avenues as well. Um, I guess conceivably it would have been possible to procure these medications yourself. 
if you could get them in large enough quantities. Not legally. Not legally. Not no, no, no. Not, not legally, but conceivably. <laughs> oh, sure. Okay. Yes. If I were a completely different person <laughs> with a completely different set of skills and um, knowledge, perhaps I would have been able to arrange that. I mean, did you, prior to this, did you think it was just a lot easier? Because, I mean, I think a lot of us kind of go along. I'm certainly guilty of this because I think about death and dying all the time. I, like, oh, I'm just going to kill myself. I, I say that to myself all the time as a sort of self-soothing mechanism. And I obviously don't know what I'm talking about, but sort of where were you with respect to that sort of thought process? Well, um, I am all for self-soothing of all kinds. Um, I, I assume that's one of the things that makes Instagram so popular. But um, nevertheless, if you're actually thinking about it, it is less soothing. And I think that people need to think to themselves, when I say to myself, oh, I'll just kill myself at a certain point, I would suggest that they think about how would I do that? And what would be involved? Because it's important and it's worthwhile to think about. And the thinking about it is not that soothing, but it might be important. So let's talk about the Dignitas Clinic. You were not familiar with it, it sounds like. How did you discover it? And what was the first step to getting there? You know, I know how to research. I'm not as good at it as somebody who's 20, but I'm not bad at it. And um, eventually, as you work your way through right to die, final exit, hemlock society, sooner or later, you will trip over, you know, Googling speaking, you will trip over Dignitas. And I found it. And you have to become a member first, which implies nothing. It's just that you are sending them a couple hundred dollars in support of the organization. And then I proceeded to find out what would be required for Brian's application to be accepted, and we went to work on the application. And that's, that's the process. So you have to get the medical records, and there are some interviews, and then there's a provisional green light. And then when you get to Zurich, there are two medical interviews before your appointment. Can you read um, the opening of the book? You you open the book right uh, right there at the clinic, so I think it's as good a point of entry as any into the. Place. Well, I open I open the book as we are en route. This trip to Zurich is a new, not quite normal version of something Brian and I love: traveling, road trip, train ride, ferry ride, airplane anywhere. We like all travel and most shopping, and this trip to Zurich has all the accoutrements of our other trips and is also nothing like anything we've ever done. As we usually do, we take a car service to the airport so we can be fancy and also avoid the park and schlep. And even before Brian had Alzheimer's, our combined lack of direction always added 20 minutes to all transportation transitions. We have a restaurant meal before our 6 p.m. departure. I buy a stick of lipstick and a small tube of hand cream. Brian buys some candy. We share gum. We share a bottle of water. On the plane, we enjoy the settling in, the attention of the flight attendants, who already like us because Brian is mindful about his size and doesn't swing his arm into someone else's drink, and he expresses appreciation to every single Swiss Air representative. We seem like people who will not be screaming for more booze or more peanuts at midnight. No one loves business class more than people who always fly coach. We are smiling from the moment we board. 
I arrange our business class pods. We are gushingly polite to the attendants. It's obvious that we like each other and are happy to be traveling together. And as soon as we get our beverages in glasses, we toast my sister and my brother-in-law who are paying for our business class trip to Zurich. Dignitas's office is in Zurich, and that's where we're headed. Dignitas is a Swiss nonprofit organization offering accompanied suicide. For the last 22 years, Dignitas has been the only place to go if you are an American citizen who wants to die and if you are not certifiably terminally ill with no more than six months to live. This is the current standard in the United States, even in the nine right-to-die states plus the District of Columbia, about which many older or chronically ill Americans harbor end-of-life fantasies and which I researched at Brian's direction until we discovered that the only place in the world for painless, peaceful, and legal suicide is Dignitas in the suburbs of Zurich. Thank you. So what, what is this place like? It's, you describe being in an apartment. Is it like a facility? Is, I it's know not a facility. It's, yeah. it's an apartment. When you have the interviews, the medical interviews, they come to you. Uh, they meet you at a hotel or wherever you're staying. And when you go at the end for the accompanied suicide, it's a it's an apartment in an industrial suburb outside of Zurich. And why is it there? It, are they like worried about it? This is this is entirely above board. So why is entirely the... above board? But it is not, as you can imagine, necessarily a subject or an activity that people feel comfortable with. I mean, it is it is legal, but I can assure you that, for example, when Dignitas had their offices and their apartment next to a brothel, the people who owned the brothel were very uncomfortable. One doesn't always like signs of mortality in the middle of, you know, sexual okay. explosions. A particular kind um, of fetish, perhaps, but yes, but, okay. But, but most people, you know, don't find it comfortable. I don't blame them. So this is a little bit out of the way, and it looks like, well, we don't have that many settings like this. It's sort of in a semi-industrial park, but it's a small apartment building. And it's a first large first floor apartment. There's a big sort of open space. And uh, then there's a bathroom and a kitchen and a table and little bowls of chocolate and bottles of water and it's very clean. It's very peaceful. The volunteers who meet you are very kind and very thoughtful. And everybody is very committed to saying to you repeatedly, or to Brian in this case, repeatedly, are you sure? Are you sure about your decision? If at any time you wish to change your mind, please know that we will be entirely supportive of that. When you were going through the process of applying to Dignitas, getting clearance, so to speak, the people you were communicating with weren't always using their full names right away. What's the reason for that? I think, again, it is more to be protective of the people who are volunteers or are working for the organization. I imagine you might also get some difficult requests or difficult applicants. And I think there's just a layer of protection, not because the people who are doing it feel that they are doing something wrong and not because the Swiss feel that they are doing something illegal, but it's a difficult subject for people. And although, uh, you know, big concept 
kinds of things, people are often very comfortable putting their names on it. I think the actual details of helping people who have chosen to die is something that's quite emotionally fraught. And so there's a little layer of protection for the people who volunteer. How many months between the official diagnosis and embarking on this trip elapsed? For us, it was about six months. Okay. And it was you you still had to jump through a lot of hoops um and it, at one point there was a there was an mri i think and a and a neurologist or somebody had written that that brian had a depressive episode and that you know that was a threatened to torpedo the whole thing can you explain what happened there for instance sure it was just a lazy neurologist the neurologist wrote in the reason for the mri a clinical severe depression. And that was enough to torpedo it in Dignitas's eyes because they are very clear that you have to have both the cognitive judgment and the stability to make this choice. And so somebody who had suffered from lifelong clinical depression, they felt would be somebody who, you know, just wanted to end their life. And that was not what they were there for. Their their goal is to be there for people who are either ill or old or suffering in some terrible way, um, chronic or acute, who wish to end their life with, with, with dignity, as they would say. Their motto, in fact, is life with dignity, death with dignity. And so that was a real problem for us. And we needed to find somebody who could rebut that statement, which of course was made on the basis of absolutely no clinical interviews and no clinical history of depression. And so that was that was very difficult. And did they know why this was such a big deal? Because at one point you're going back and forth with the office or somebody and they say, Amy, it's not that big a deal. It doesn't matter what we wrote on the top of this form. It's neither here nor there. Is that because they didn't know what you were doing? They didn't know. But I have to say, neither Brian nor I was particularly comfortable with this doctor, and it did not feel to us like sharing Brian's plans would lead to a better outcome. And we were both just found ourselves quite uncomfortable with the neurologist. Was he deteriorating rapidly during this time? What was it like at home while you were trying to get this done? Well, I suppose rapidly depends on how you look at it. Um, there were certainly noticeable losses in lots of ways. On the other hand, there would always be sort of a surprise, like at one point we had to get his birth certificate for Dignitas and send it to them. And he stood up from the kitchen table and said, I know exactly where it is. And I thought, that seems unlikely. But he went to it and found it in about two minutes. On the other hand, he had started to get lost if he was on his own in the grocery store. It was overwhelming to him. And did he understand how difficult this bureaucracy was? I mean, at one point he's joking that you should just you should just kill him and it's okay. If, if you went to jail, you would do great. Um, it's a very funny moment there. At, at one point, a friend, um, you know, volunteers to, to shoot him in a few years if he's, if he's still around uh, as, you know, the gallows humor between friends. It's actually quite comforting. What was he kind of imagining you were going through? Did he realize the extent of the difficulty? Well, I think he understood the extent of the difficulty in the United States which is what led us to Dignitas. 
I didn't share with him a lot of the ups and downs of the application process because I didn't wish to trouble him as he was contemplating the end of his life and going about his life. And so uh, it is certainly my hope that he didn't know all of the ups and downs. He, he knew that we were, I was working on it and he knew that you know, it was not always going smoothly. By and large, I was able to protect him from the details. On the other hand, you know, he was fully cognizant of the interviews and what they were for. So the process, he completely understood. When we ran into a speed bump, I tried when I could not to share that with him. I want to talk about your relationship with Brian. This was, you met in midlife. You were both involved with other people. It's, it seems like an unusual, not unusual, but it's not your, 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 you're an unlikely pair in some ways. Um, you're, you're a writer, you're Jewish intellectual. He's from a famous football family. There are three Heisman trophies in the family, in his family. He's a fly fisherman. You know, at one point during your courtship, you write, he says to you, I know who you could be with someone rich, someone fancy, someone your sister finds for you, but I know who you should be with. You should be with a guy who doesn't mind that you're smarter than he is, who doesn't mind that most of the time you'll be the main event. You need to be with a guy who supports how hard you work and who'll bring you a cup of coffee late at night. I suspect that for a lot of women with big professional lives and artists, creative professions especially, that passage was very resonant. A man who says he doesn't mind that you'll be the main event. Did it actually work out that way? Absolutely. I think if you talk to people at my publishing house, they will tell you that he was so supportive, that he loved to come to readings. I'd be like, honey, you've heard it before. He was like, "I, I like to go. I like to watch. He was just just great in that role as a partner to me in my work. And, you know, and I certainly did my best to be a good partner to him in his work as well. But I think he was probably a little more excited about my work in some ways. Than you were excited about his? He was an architect, we should say. He was a wonderful architect. He was not a professional fly fisherman. Yeah. (laughs) No. No, he would have liked to have been a professional fly fisherman, but uh, no, he was a wonderful architect and did um, beautiful public housing projects and uh, really cared about them and cared about giving people the kind of housing that they deserved and that would make their lives better. No, I admired very much the work that he did, and it was nice that he admired the work that I did. What do you think it is about him? that allowed him to take a backseat to you? Is it because you were both older when you met that you had both been in other kinds of relationships or is it just the nature of his particular temperament? I think being older certainly helps. I mean, I always say to people, boy, when you marry, don't marry somebody just for their virtues, marry them for their faults because you prefer those faults to other kinds of faults um, because everybody's going to have them. And so Brian was a big, fearless, very assertive guy who liked to get his way and, um, you know, loved being taken care of, loved being a guest. And the fact is that I preferred somebody, you know, who would drive a little recklessly to somebody that you would have to coax off the sidewalk. And 
I think the other thing is that he didn't take a backseat to me, I would say, except in like my very, in the very specifics of my professional life. You know, when Brian was in a room, you knew Brian was in a room. But again, he was comfortable with both those things. And was that something that was new for you? I don't, I don't mean to obsess about this, but I think it's actually really, really relevant. And I'm curious, you know, you were, you were a therapist for many, many years. You've been in the literary world. You've been in the media circles. It's not like most, you know, most of us professional women writers were not with men like this. We're not with like the jock, you know, we're not with this kind of personality type and maybe we should be. And I don't know if you have thoughts about this beyond your, your own relationship and maybe, you know, having to do with clients that you've had over the years or friends. I'm just curious, like what you think about that. I don't think you have to have common interests, frankly. I mean, Brian and I did. I mean, I, I should say, <laughs> in fairness to Brian, he would want me to say, you know, he did go to Yale. Yeah, I know. We should <laughs> say, he, yes. And he, and he did. And he was a voracious reader. He read more fiction than I did. But, you know, I don't feel like you have to have a lot of common interests. I, I cannot tell you how boring I find stories about fishing. I can't even tell you how boring I find fishing itself. And I always did. The first time Brian came to sort of court me when my daughters were at home, he started a long, boring, self-centered, highly detailed story about fly fishing. And my daughters, bless their hearts, both sank to the floor as if they had been shot and said, we like you, please don't ever tell these stories again. That didn't stop him, but it did stop him from telling the stories to my children. I think you have to have sort of compatible spirits, you know, and the things that Brian and I had in common were not our hobbies. And it was not Henry James. I have other people I can talk to Henry James about, plus I have my own thoughts, so I don't really need to talk to somebody else about them, except for fun. And I just certainly didn't need that in a husband. But what we had in common was that neither of us was very good at denial. Both of us preferred a certain amount of transparency. We had very similar values politically. He had never had children and never wanted children, but he was willing to embrace my children and he adored the grandchildren and they adored him. So he was willing to have the shape of his family life conform to my stronger wishes. And we trusted each other. We both thought the other person was the right kind of person, a good person, a person you'd want to be in trouble with. And that made all the difference. Would you have understood the importance of those things when you were younger? Well, clearly not, because I was married before and it didn't work out. and. I think I have a better understanding of it now, which is you have to really like them and not just like them because they are nice to you. But a friend of mine wrote me a beautiful letter a few days ago, having just read In Love. And he said, I saw that when Brian came into the room, you not only looked at him with love, but with approval and respect. It was an endorsement of everything he was. We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. I do this show every week and I pretty much do it all by myself. That is why as much as I'm loath to ask for help, 
people who know me know this, I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, nuanced conversations with all kinds of people, novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes even just regular folks with something interesting to say, I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way you can. One way to do this is by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can join for as little as $5 a month. That gives you early and ad-free access to the show or for as much as $100 a month. And yes, people have done that. There are lots of perks at every level, including if you join at the $10 a month tier or higher, the chance to join our bi-weekly hangout where we, and that includes me, get together on Zoom to talk about a recent specific episode of the show. Joining at that level also gets you discounts on your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. If Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the podcast webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donation button. This podcast is a one-woman enterprise. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, secret investment cabal, or anything like that. I do it because I love it. And if you love it, or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help, actually. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word, actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking. And with that, back to the interview. Brian died in January of 2020. Is that right? It's there's a remarkable moment where you go to a you go to a tarot card reader and you're very apologetic for um, having such a person in your life, but. Um, you know, you are, I think is this in the fall of 2019 and she says something like you're going to be given the choice, you know, to, to choose between three different dates for him to die and you should take the first one. I can't really tell you why, but if you take a later date, I, I see trouble. And in fact, if you had taken a later date, COVID would have been around by then and you would have encountered a lot of trouble. He died in January of 2020. When did you start writing the book? Or were you writing the book all along with your notes and your notebook? Well, I had notes as 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 one does when you are a caregiver for somebody who has an illness. Uh, I, I imagine everybody all over the world has scraps of paper or a notebook or things that you're writing down, you know, B12 supplements, go to the gym, doctor's appointment, all of those things. So I had those notes and occasionally when something happened, I would write a, maybe a few paragraphs about it. Um, you know, when we had had the MRI and it was such, it was a difficult experience. And I remember coming home and just saying, oh my God, the MRI and just writing down a few paragraphs. And then when I came back, I mean, I didn't write much of anything. I didn't do much of anything. And then I started to go to the office. It was winter. It was cold. It was gray. And I would, you know, stare out the window and stare at my computer and drink tea and eat toast. I live in a small town and my office is a block and a half away above the luncheonette. 
Um, it's it's perfect. It is it is very much in keeping with sort of the most depressing Doris Lessing short story you've ever read. Um, I love it. it. Makes me very happy. And uh, it's a real dump. And early in March, so I had been home for maybe five weeks. Early in March, my um, my younger daughter calls me and she goes, well, they've shut down daycare. You can't get a babysitter. There's no child care. And we both have to start working full time from home. And I said, get in the car and come here. And so they got in the car and came here and lived with me for five months. And it was, as it turns out, a tremendous gift that to be able to grieve and live was exactly what I needed. What was your plan in terms of the whole trip? You just mentioned your daughter. You you had this very elaborately choreographed. You and Brian went over to Zurich, as you wrote about in your opening passage. You had this experience. You You went to the apartment. You sat there. You write very movingly about his final hours. In fact, they they give him they they give you a medication so you don't vomit when they do eventually give you the medication. So you know it's that and that if you that will wear off after a certain period of time. So then you have the option to take the anti-vomiting medication again if you then plan to take the the final medication a little bit after that. And I think he went through a couple of rounds of that. What were you thinking at the in those moments? Did you want them to go quickly? Did you want them never to end? Was it actively uncomfortable to be in that space? What was it like just kind of on a moment by moment basis? Well, I think that that's the important thing. It was moment by moment. And I didn't have a lot of thoughts about it. I just wanted to be with Brian and to be whatever he needed me to be and, and to be with him and to love him. And so, I mean, I'm sure it was, well, I can't say that it was uncomfortable. All I cared about was being with him. And I didn't wish that things would hurry or that they would, it was just, it was just difficult. But, you know, like so many things in life that are difficult, I think it was just, just one moment at a time. And to do my best to be as present as I absolutely could be for him. Had you and he talked about any spiritual matters? I don't get the sense he was a religious person. You talked about him having been involved with the Unitarians at one point, and uh, the Unitarians aren't exactly known for their their uh, thoughts about the afterlife. But did either of you have any thoughts about what might happen after we die? I don't think either of us thought about it at all. I don't think well, I know that neither of us had thoughts about an afterlife. Neither of us was religious. I identify very much as Jewish. I don't know what else I could be. He didn't really identify as a Unitarian. He had gone to the Unitarian Church for, I think, about 15 years and felt like they were very nice people and, and it was a good thing, but probably not for him. And he certainly was not connected to the Catholic faith of his childhood. So that didn't really come up for either one of us. I think we both felt that what mattered is how you live and how you are with other people, that there was not a particularly spiritual structure to our lives or our belief system. 
And we should say that he had siblings who were alive. His mother was still living. His mother, Yvonne. Mm -hmm. What did she think about this plan? What was that like for her? She was wonderful. She really was. She's, she was an exceptional support for us both. And it was her best friend who had suffered from Alzheimer's. And Yvonne saw it from the beginning to the end. And when she had come to visit, she already knew about the diagnosis. And she and I were both earlier risers than Brian. And so I went to her room and said, you know, I want to talk to you. And I told her what Brian had decided and that I was supportive of it. And she burst into tears. And I thought, oh, Oh, I'm so sorry if this is so terrible for you. And she said, I am so relieved. I have seen this disease close up and I did not want that for my boy. She said, thank you for helping him. And she, she was, was a Catholic. She was just, a, she, yeah, she was and is, you yeah. know, more than once a week, mass. Wow. I want to talk about the book itself, Writer to Writer. You say that, this is the hardest book you've ever written. In what way? I can imagine all sorts of ways, but what was it like to try to figure out how to put this all together? Well, I mean, despite the fact of conversations like these, I'm actually quite a private person. And um, so writing about myself and writing about Brian, um, I, I had no interest in writing a memoir ever. It would never would have occurred to me to write a memoir. I thought of myself as mostly a fiction writer with occasional, you know, occasional little essay uh, and minding my own business. And so this was not a form that was ever close to my heart. And um, pushing myself to write about it because I felt it was important and even more because I had promised Brian that I would and he was adamant was, was, was a challenge. And then you know, the more writerly part is what is of interest to other people? What, what is the structure that will serve this story in which the recent past and the distant past and the right now all have to be braided together structurally so that the reader always knows where they are, but also has a sense of the shifting scenes and the passage of time. So those were the challenges for me. Did you go through many drafts? Were you pulling your hair out? Because, you know, we have people like... I, I don't, Joan I don't know how to write in any other way. <laughs> I mean, Joan I, Didion I, I mean, says it just, your magical thinking just, you know, fell out of her, you know, effortlessly, supposedly. That sounds great. I, I have never had that experience in my life, writing ever anything. So that does sound lovely. You know, I noticed that you did not talk at all about the people that you had been involved with when you and Brian met. Um, and obviously that was deliberate. And I don't know if you want to talk about this at all, but were either of those people involved in your lives when this illness was taking place and this was going on? No, they were not. And uh, also, I mean, as I say, I, I don't, Everybody has different rules, I'm sure, for memoirs, but I wanted to write about, in some sense, not only what mattered to me, but really what mattered to the story and what mattered around this particular story of Brian's life and death. I know Dorothy Allison once said famously, you know, the greatest motivation for writing is revenge. That, that is not how I feel. What is the greatest motivation for writing for you? now that you mention it? 
Well, I do like to tell a story and I do like to think about things. And I do think a lot about people and their lives, including my own, but often other people as well. And I think better when I write it down. I understand things better when I put them on the page. So I suspect understanding and storytelling are the things that push me forward. Slowly and painstakingly, I'm sorry to say. What kinds of things have people said to you since this book has been published? I can imagine that you're hearing from all sorts of people about their own experiences with death and dying. A great deal. And people, one of the things that a couple of friends had said to me before the book came out is, you know, you just need to be prepared for a lot of, you know, pushback from religious people or conservative people, people who are not comfortable with the choice you made. There was almost none of that. What I have gotten is, hundreds and hundreds of emails from people who are professionals, palliative care, doctors, gerontologists, hospice nurses, end-of-life doctors from other countries, and then just endless emails from people about their own experience with their spouse or their parent, very often with their spouse about what they went through, either their Dignitas experience or their experience in the United States, what they were able to do. I got one really, really heartbreaking email from a woman who said, I'm in the same situation that you and Brian were in with my husband. I didn't know about Dignitas. I wasn't able to find it. And now I fear that it is too late. And, you know, I, I thank you for writing about it. And I thought, well, you are welcome, but I, I, I feel terrible that it is of so little help. You know, I'm not surprised that there was no pushback. It, to me, the right to die with dignity is like, I feel like it's going to be the sort of civil rights issue of the next 50 years. I can't fathom why we allow human beings to die this way. I mean, it's such a cliche, but we don't allow our pets to suffer the way we allow our loved ones, our loved human beings to suffer. So I know you're not an activist, you're not a policymaker, but like, what can people do in order to change the laws, to change the way things are? Well, if you are interested in being an activist, you can certainly join an organization like, I think it's called Compassionate Choices. Yeah, um, Compassion which, and Choices. Yeah, that's, is that a choices. national organization? I thought it was yeah. just in California. Okay. No, yeah, it's a national yes. organization. Compassion and Choices, Yes. You can support something like, I think there's an organization in New York State called End of Life, New York State. There are organizations in almost every state in the, in the country. But you would have to push your legislators, your state senators, your state representatives to support this and not, not just support it in the way as to create such a tiny eye of such a narrow needle that so few people can take advantage of this possibility. And that requires that people talk about things that are, you know, unspeakable. And what would that look like? Like literally just being able to access this medication and like put it on a high shelf and forget about it? It's, I mean, needless I'm to sure say, there's very, a lot of I'm sure complications there. Yeah, I'm sure it'd be very different for, for lots of people. And I don't necessarily have a problem with there being a government role 
But if you if part of what you believe is the government is there to help people when they need help, it would be good if our government could help people when they needed help. And it means that you have to do a lot of thinking, uh, which is not always everybody's favorite thing. You know, thinking about the meaning of the policy and the purpose of the policy. And people have lots of fears and anxieties. And I think that that's appropriate and understandable. But it doesn't mean to me that the best response to something being difficult and fraught is to stop thinking about it or make people's choices impossible so that they can never do anything that you find difficult or fraught. How many people die at Dignitas every year? Do you know? Oh, I don't know uh, how many die every year. I think maybe they've helped 3,500 people end their life in 20 years. It's not a vast number. Mm -hmm. And it costs a lot of money. I mean, this is not something everybody can access, to say the least. No, it's, there's, there's, there's no equity in this health system at any point. And, and Dignitas is not an example of it. You know, it's interesting. I was doing some reporting a couple of years ago about palliative care. It's a subject that interests me. And I was specifically looking into a hospice team, a palliative care team that worked with children. And 100% of the kids who were in this network were kids of color poor, low-income kids of color, their family, they, were, they had cancer, they were, they were terminally ill. The doctors were explaining that most of the kids that end up in their caseload are not white. And that is because white parents are less likely to, quote-unquote, give up on their kids who are terminally ill. They're less accepting of death. And sometimes the doctors have an unconscious or conscious maybe bias and they don't give up on the white kids either because they relate to them. And there was something really striking in these families. They were so devastated. They were very poor. I went around with this hospice team. They were doing home visits and you know people were living in very poor conditions, often without air conditioning. It was the summer. I mean, just real discomfort. I mean, even though their care teams were, you know, quite good. And I, I just thought it really says something. It takes, it takes a humility. I don't know another word to accept that we're not all going to live forever. And in some cases, people who are much too young are going to die. And I don't know, this isn't really a question, but it's just, it's one of those things to think about. Um, it may just be a kind of collective lack of humility that contributes to our inability to, to wrestle with this subject. Well, I think that's often true for privileged people. It's also true for doctors. You know, as friends of mine who are doctors say, when they were in medical school, death was the enemy. I don't know that that's the most helpful attitude. Do you have thoughts about your own death now? I know we opened this conversation by my asking about this, but like, has have your quote unquote plans changed since you've gone through this experience? Not really. Um, if I am, certainly if I faced a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, I would absolutely do what Brian did and hope to be supported in that. You know, my hope for a relatively painless, relatively peaceful death after a long and happy life has not altered. My willingness to pay attention, to be aware, to shape what I can shape, to 
have living wills, to have advanced directives, which, by the way, sometimes are followed and sometimes are not, um, has not altered. So, Amy, before we close out here, I want to ask you about your life as a writer and as a professional person these days. Are you still teaching? Um, do you have any foothold in the the therapy world? What's your What are your days like? I see a few clients uh, weekly. I didn't for a few, you know, for many years, but then I picked it up again, and I I like that. I I like being a therapist. Um, I'm a good therapist, and it's easier than being a writer for me. Uh, <laughs> I am starting work on a novel soon. A lot of thinking, a lot of staring out the window, uh, a lot of notes, but no no writing as yet. And I'm coming to the end of my semester uh, teaching at Wesleyan. And uh, two more classes, and then we have the picnic. How has teaching changed um, since the time you've been doing it? We don't, this is not something we need to delve into because I, we, I talk about it too much on this show, but, uh, you know, have you noticed changes with your students, with their, their, even their attitudes towards reading or writing? Is the nature of their writing significantly different than it was 10, 20 years ago? I don't know that the nature of their writing is different. For the last few years, I have taught very specific uh, creative writing classes, one in writing for television, one in creating children's books, because I wanted to take a break from teaching people to write fiction. You know, they, they, they work hard. They're s- smart, most of them, uh, and interesting, most of them. Uh, they are not always as widely read as my students were 20 years ago. My international students are often more widely read than my American students. And when I first started teaching, I had students who were maybe a little too overtly really proud of having read a wide range of both classic and contemporary fiction. I don't see that as much in my students now. They read. They tend to read people who they feel speak to them and represent them, and they tend not to read people who do not. I keep encouraging them to mix it up, to read people, to read work in which, you, in which it is, the work is a mirror, but also to read work in which the work is a window. Do they care about books in and of themselves the way like we do or people used to? I'm hearing more and more that people want to listen to books or audiobooks or they want some other kinds of kind of medium to deliver content. I don't think that I mean I'm sure each student is different. I don't experience with them as a as a group at this point that books are the kind of glowing jewel at the end of the cave that must be found and excavated and polished and brought into the light that I felt about it when I was a young person. It's, it's just, a, as a friend of mine said, who's a, also a writer and a teacher, books are not the thing. And that's what I feel like for them. Books are not the thing. Why did you call this book In Love? Why that title? I think because I acted out of love, and because I was in love. That's a good answer. Well, Amy Bloom, thank you so much for speaking with me. I've been a big admirer of yours, and I 
really was very moved by this book. Um, I think it's an incredibly important topic and you take it on in a way that I think is accessible and it's not, it's not uncomfortable to read. It's actually comforting to read. I'm glad. I, I appreciate that. I, um, you know, I, I wanted to share something and I wanted in part to start a conversation for people. And so I'm glad that you feel like people can come into it, not that it's too hard to enter. No, no, quite the contrary. Well, thank you for starting the conversation and thank you for having this conversation. And um, hopefully we can do it again sometime. I hope so. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was my interview with Amy Bloom. She is the author of four novels and three collections of short stories, among other books. Her most recent book, In Love, the one we've just talked about, is a New York Times bestseller. She has written for magazines such as The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, and Vogue, and her work has been translated into 15 languages. She's currently a professor of creative writing at Wesleyan University. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. You can support this show at the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can get lots of perks there, but if Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by visiting the show's website at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donate button on the homepage. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.